Welcome once again to another episode of The Wall Behind and Beyond. I am your host, Philip A. Jones. As always, we speak to the issues affecting those who are just as impacted by providing insights and ideas for how we can navigate the criminal legal system. It is our mission to raise awareness and be a place of support for those behind the wall as well as their loved ones on the outside. Today, we have a guest who is a master educator and a leading expert in the impacts of trauma and incarceration on adult learners. She is the author of the book, Building a Trauma-Responsive Educational Practice. She is also a skilled facilitator and speaker. Please welcome to the show, M. Daniels. How are you, M? I'm good. I feel like I need some like entrance music, some Rocky theme happening in the background. Absolutely. We can make that happen for you, though. You know, it ain't no thing. <laughs> Um, you know, it's good to have you, you know, welcome finally, you know what I'm saying? We've been trying to talk to you, um, because you know, you have an important story to tell, um, in some of the work that you're doing. And there's a lot of our listeners who have been, uh, interested in hearing about that. So, you know, that's a great thing. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation and thanks for your patience. When you first reached out to me, I was sort of in the middle of moving and all of that. So it took a little bit longer for us to get connected than I think we originally anticipated. No worries, no worries. You know, better late than never, you know what I'm saying? And uh, sometimes, as they say, uh, last but not least, you hear me? So I appreciate you for coming through. Can you tell us where you're from and a little bit about your background? Well, I'm not really from anywhere. I grew up in a military family. Um, I was born in Hawaii. We moved around. My stepfather was uh, naval was in the Navy. So we moved around on Navy bases. We did a couple of tours of duty on the Aleutian chain and uh, eventually settled into the South. So I spent most of my young adulthood in North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia area. And then I moved out to Oregon in 2004 to pursue my master's degree and was in Portland for a number of years, moved to Spokane in 2017 and spent five years there. That's where I ended up writing the book. That's where I worked in reentry. And then I recently decided to relocate back to the Portland area. So I am back in Southwest Washington. And, and then my background educationally is I have a, a bachelor's degree in communications and a master's degree in teaching, which was really a degree that I created for myself in peace education. And I wanted to work as a peace educator, not even really knowing what that meant. And I ended up doing that work uh, for quite a while and um, still consider myself to be a peace educator in some senses, but not not quite in the way that I did. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, There's some big things going on up in Spokane. We did do an interview with some people from I Did the Time up there. They were talking, you know, and, the, and they were saying how, you know, there's a lot of opportunities uh, for reentry and so forth. So I was just shouting out that after you said that you wrote the book up there. I read your book, you know, Building a Trauma-Responsive Educational Practice, um, Lessons from a Corrections Classroom. It was one of the best books I read in quite a while. Um, and in it, you write, I hate prisons, quote, uh, unquote. Can you tell us why this is? Uh, what were your thoughts about prison before you experienced working in one? I didn't know a lot about prisons. Um, like, I think a lot of people didn't. And uh, other than shout out to people who have been doing work for a really long time around criminal legal reform and corrections reform. Um, but I just, I didn't know a not even in my master's work, there just wasn't any 
there was nothing available to learn unless you knew where to look. So when I got out of school, I, I sort of had like an interest in working with people coming out of prison, but I was never quite able to get connected to the groups that were doing that. And when I went to work in the prison, one of the reasons that I did it sort of, you know, how you sort of are interested in something, you don't really know what you're, what it is. Um, but I was kind of interested in like who would work in a prison like what kind of people would work in a prison. And so that was uh, kind of interesting, but mainly like I needed a job and I was uh, teaching a, a computer and career, computer technology and career class. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, this is, this will be a good job and, and whatnot. And then it turned into something that I would never have imagined. So it was a, but since that time, like I, I have worked in, alternative high schools in prisons and then in reentry and um, education. So I've sort of seen all these three segments of the, of the pipeline of the relationship between education and prison. And, and they're terrible. Like it's, it's all terrible. All, all of it is, um, is just really systemically designed to harm people and punish people um, if they don't fall into a particularly narrow demographic, but prisons, especially it is very difficult to to get people who have never worked in a prison. And when I say worked in a prison, I mean, have been there extensively like 20, 30, 40 hours a week. Because when you go in as a volunteer, you get like a taste of it, but you don't really get the full experience. Um, maybe over time, if you're in there a long time. But if you're not there sort of consistently for a, a number of hours a week, it's hard to get a sense for all of the ways that people are harmed. And it's difficult to convey that to people who have it because they they don't, they can't believe it. They won't believe it. They won't believe how bad it really is. And so I think part of writing this book, part of the reason that I wrote it was I wanted people to have some understanding without having to tell a bunch of stories that weren't mine to tell. Um, I wanted them to understand like, this is what it's, this is what, Functionally, this is what it's like to work here. Like, this is what happens. For sure. And, you know, I love what you had to say. That's why uh, my nonprofit, um, Inside Outside Consults, was dedicated. And the mission was to try to change the culture um, of how we do prisons here. And then I went on uh, to create the LLC. And the reason for that, the consulting LLC, was because I imagine that it has to be difficult to be an educator in here or someone coming in uh, into a, a space where you're trying to teach adults um, when they have so many different um, stresses and um, things that's um, going on in their lives, a high-intense stress level uh, place where they have to stay. But, the, but my point was you got to think if the culture doesn't change, then the training necessary for one to be employed here actually takes away one's ability to be able to impart certain things because you must – uh, thread a needle, and I and I imagine that has to be very difficult. So that's that's the, that's one of the struggles and one of the challenges for people who you know do the work that you do um, at the time, um, because um, if they don't change that, if they don't have a new way of training and, and coming about it and approaching it, um, there's never going to be a full experience for the person that's sit, sitting in my shoes. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I don't know that our current system. I don't know that there's any amount of change that is going to make a difference. And, and the reason I say that is not because people are not well-intentioned or anything like that, but, but anytime you give one set of people complete, unfettered, unobserved, unaccountable 
control over the physical body of another person where the the person who is being controlled cannot withdraw consent. They cannot say no. I, I don't I don't think that you can ever have a healthy system because the person who cannot withdraw consent is always under threat of retaliation. They're under threat of physical harm, mental harm, emotional harm. <clears throat> I don't know that there is any way that our current system could actually be reformed without a level of accountability back to correction staff that I, I don't think is possible. Or maybe it's, maybe I just don't have a, maybe my imagination isn't good enough. No, I think what you're saying is right on point. It's all the way true. But what I'm seeing is that in the uh, places outside the country, in places such as Europe, if you, even if you go to the UK, they have open prisons um, when you get to a certain point. So I believe that if we change the culture, if we do away with all of the things that allow uh, policymakers to also be disciplinarians uh, to enforce rules, see, you gotta have it has to be separate. So, say for instance. Instead of being called a correctional person who enforces rules, we need accountability partners and mentors, uh, people that ask us, how are we? Um, how is your day? You know, how, is there anything that we can do to, uh, you know, make you, help you in your programming? Uh, you know, like a mentor as opposed to someone looking to enforce rules all the time. And in the open prisons that they have, these guys go out to work. They go out to go to the college. They don't do college in the prison. Um, and so we're going to do a show on that coming up pretty soon. But that is the model that we have to get to. And we're a long way from that because in our system and in our country, um, we don't promote these kind of things. I, I agree. And that's what I mean. Like, that's a that is a, a completely different approach. And I, I'm assuming you're talking maybe about the, the Norway, the Norway model or those kinds of those kinds of models where it is much more where there is much more freedom for people. And the, it is more, I don't even want to say rehabilitative because I feel like there's just a, I don't know if the word rehabilitation is accurate because, and that's another conversation. We could talk about that at some other point. Not that, not that I don't think people can, and I'm quoting rehabilitate. I just don't know that that's the word that I would choose. The things with the Norway model that I think when you're talking about bringing that into the U.S. doesn't, doesn't have the foundation of racism and slave catching that our penal system has. So it's not grounded in, in that, uh, you know, crime against humanity. Um, and it also is on a very, very small scale. So I think when you talk about the sheer number of people that have been incarcerated or, or you know, family members and whatnot that have all been impacted by incarceration, I think that that's a very, a very significant challenge when you talk about that kind of programming. Um, and then also there's the uh, economic interests of the prison industrial complex and how deeply embedded in our society it is in, in terms of um, you still have people who are working for slave wages or less, and they have a significant investment in keeping those people working. The, you know, government systems do have that. For sure. That's a powerful statement. And uh, you're right on point with that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So how do we counter the impact of trauma on adult learning? Um, how do we expand beyond a mental health approach? Well, I think those are two connected but different questions. So countering the impacts of trauma is a, is a pretty broad question. I think that there are lots of different kinds of trauma. It sticks with people differently. One of the things we run into and the reason that doesn't have a 
a specific direct answer is because we don't really have a lot of information about how different kinds of trauma impact people differently. So I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, you know, a, a research psychologist or anything like that. So I'm having to work with information for um, basically lay people like myself to understand. So my understanding is is pretty basic, you know, pretty beginner level of understanding compared to people who do this research like Dr. Bruce Perry and Bessel van der Kolk and Resma Minicum and um, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who are all doing this work. So when I think about how trauma impacts learning, when the body is, uh, and we'll just talk about this one piece of it. So the way that you, there's all different kinds of learning. You can learn at any point. Humans are just built to be learning creatures. So, it, so just because you've had a traumatic experience doesn't mean you aren't learning anything. What I think about when I think about trauma and learning is, are you learning to the best of your capacity? Are you able to use all of your learning ability as as much as you can. And what I think trauma does is it makes the answer to that question a no, because it impacts when you have your body flooded with stress chemicals, really useful when you're trying to, you know, escape a woolly mammoth that's charging you and you can run away for 15 minutes and you're fine, right? And then your body can deescalate itself and, you know, you can have dinner and whatever. But when you are in a constant low level threat state, which is what happens when you have an actual traumatic event that is so sort of overwhelming that your brain doesn't really know how to cope with it. So you've got this constant low level stress going on, even if you aren't really aware of it, or if it's so normal that you don't know what your life is like without it, that disrupts the ability of your brain, the amygdala through the hippocampus to talk to the centers of the, the centers of higher learning. So in it disrupts your ability to use all of your brain and all of your learning centers to actually bring in information and make meaning out of it. So countering that is is something that we can do in a lot of different ways. Some of them are through therapy, but when you're talking about what is happening in the classroom, I think that we have a number of different ways we can approach that that don't have to include a therapeutic, like a group therapy session or one-on-one -on -one therapy or anything, anything along those lines. So my work is really around how do we get teachers to understand what are some of these methods and approaches that don't require them to be counselors. That's one piece of it. And then the other piece is how do we help teachers learn how to not continue perpetuating educational trauma in their own classrooms? I think it's a little bit more, a little bit more challenging because it requires that we acknowledge, we acknowledge the ways that we perpetrate harm. You have one minute left. Happy New Year. I want to thank all of my loyal supporters for subscribing to our YouTube channel. If you've just recently started following The Wall Behind and Beyond, please hit the subscribe button as well as the notification bell. We don't want you to miss any of our upcoming episodes as we have some great show guests to bring you. Please share our show with everyone you know as we approach 1,000 subscribers. Also, to contact me directly, JPay has switched over to Securus Technologies. So download the Securus app to your mobile device and type in my prison number, which is 881-507. This will add you to my email list, and I can see your name appear on my tablet. Thank you, everyone. Let's make 2023 our best year, and let's speak truth to power.
we're back on the other side with M. Daniels. You were explaining and breaking down a couple of points. Um, did you finish or would you like to continue to answer the question or go to the next one? Um, why don't we why don't we go to the next one? Because the trauma stuff is just it's it's a lot and it could take up the whole rest of our time and I, I don't want that to happen. How does uh, conflict and education intersect? Well, organize, organized education, which is in our country, you know, public schools and all, all of the ways that we sort of learn the, the foundational for literacy, but culturally. So education is one of the ways that we become sort of acculturated into whatever country you're going to be in, where you're assimilated. If you're somebody who is not originally from this country, part of the role of education, which may or may not be spoken openly, is that you learn to assimilate. Part of learning a language is learning to assimilate into a country. And in the case of the U.S., there's a level of structural violence that can accompany that, even if students are having a really good experience with a particular teacher in their classroom. So you can have a really good individual experience, but there's a level of structural violence that's closely tied to racism and socioeconomic status, classism, and, and those things are harmful to people. Education is a gatekeeper for um, white supremacist institutions. People often succeed despite uh, what happened in educational processes instead of because. And again, I'm talking systemically and very broadly. I know that people have different different individual experiences. I agree. I had a different ed educational experience, but I have also seen data and my own observations of students listening to stories that that this is also true. Like both of these things can be true at the same time. So there is a lot of harm that is done when I think about all of the um, history of racism in education in this country. When, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education was decided, school integration began in the South. I attended one of the first integrated schools in the South. Um, and, you know, the level of racist violence that still happens around education. I mean, you just look now at what's happening in Florida, the the fact that um, critical race theory. So there's a lot of violence, structural violence specifically that happens around education. I was actually uh, thinking about what you were saying um, in terms of uh, what's going on down in Florida. And I think that I tweeted about it, too. I started saying you cannot um, say that you are educating if you're trying to whitewash history or you're trying to keep the, the generations to come from knowing what actually took place in our country. Like, And who, is, who has the right to deny people these, this, this education of this history, right? So I don't understand how in a country like ours this is it's taking place everywhere. Like these legislative people are really affecting our schools. The school board should be independent in a sense. And if you don't want your children to learn certain things and send them to private school or homeschooling, but uh, public education should not have anybody overseeing it to say, you cannot teach this or you cannot teach that. We don't want our kids to learn. Well, I want my kids to learn it. So what, what are you saying? So it's just so contradictory uh, to freedom. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that is really complicated about education is because school boards are just made up of people who are elected out of the local area. So if you're electing people who have um, very little education or who have 
been brought up in, you know, racist homes, white supremacist homes, and they're getting elected to school boards, then they do have a lot of influence. And the states do have a lot of influence over what is happening at schools, or they can, or they can, you know, work with the the boards that oversee them, like at the regional and national level. But the Department of Ed has got it's a huge bureaucracy. So I think we run into like how systems protect themselves. There's all of this bureaucratic stuff that's happening. And so even though we say we don't want this in our actual schools, the amount of time it takes for something like to get it, get through the courts, you know, you can pass legislation really quickly, but the challenges to that legislation can often take a long time. And if you can't get a, a court to stop it, a judge to say, nope, we're going to we're going to hold off on that until it gets through the courts, then edu- day-to-day education is almost immediately impacted. So I think that, you know, when you look around the country and you see the issues that are happening locally at school boards, it is staggering. It is mind-blowing that I would say it's beyond even whitewashing. Like you're actively harming people and gaslighting them and saying your history doesn't exist to us. Your history is a lie. Your history didn't happen the way that you learned it or your family told you or your parents and grandparents experienced. That's just not true. Like that is active, active psychological, mental and emotional harm. And it's right on the subject that we're talking about. That causes trauma in teaching settings in educational spaces. That causes trauma because those kids are like, why are they doing this? You know, so that, that affects them. When I was coming up, and we went to school, uh, albeit they only taught about a few different people, uh, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, and people like that, Martin Luther King, but they, they limited what we could learn if you didn't learn it at home. But at least they didn't say, oh, well, we're taking this out the book. You know, this, this is a whole new level of insanity, you know? I think it's a whole new level of cruelty. I don't think it's craziness. I think that it's cruelty. I think if you want to tie it back to trauma, you're talking about a country who's entire culture is dedicated to denial, to ignore the pain of its own history, like a country founded on genocide by people who were fleeing religious persecution that had been, like, we don't think of religious persecution in the same way now that happened, but, you know, people were getting killed, being tortured. You think about the Crusades, like none of that history has ever been reconciled. None of it is ever even talked about, but that's the history that, you know, when the when colonials came over, when people came over to colonize, that's what they were bringing with them was all of their own traumatic history. And then they just replayed that onto people who were already living in this country, First Nations people, Native people, Indigenous people. Um, They just perpetuated genocide onto those people. And that's what our country was founded on. That's what the United States was founded on. And so since that has never been addressed, our culture has just evolved to find for people who are just desperate to never have to talk about that because their tolerance for the pain of that is non-existent. They can't tolerate anything that gives them any discomfort. I mean, I think it's an actual physical reaction. The the level of, you know, attempt to deny and in any way, shape or form say that didn't happen, like all, all of the complicated things around that. That's deep, M. And um, I, I like the way your mind works. Um, that is the truth. And that's the stuff that needs to be talked about. I'm going to segue uh, because now um, we, you mentioned something in your book. And I wanted to ask 
you about it. You said something about peace activism. What is peace activism? Well, when I first returned to college to finish and then go into my master's degree, I thought I wanted to go into um, like peace studies or conflict resolution. But peace and conflict studies are a particular field. They're their own field. And it's really looking at causes of violence and more like societal, cultural, national, global structures and systems that cause violence. So I would look at environmental activism and say that's peace activism to some degree because you're talking about addressing causes of conflict when you look at people, anti-war demonstrations. So all of these particular kinds of movements that are looking at sort of ideas and and topics and trying to promote more peace in the world. And I think that when you talk about peace, like that can be a very complex topic because it doesn't mean the absence of conflict, but it's often defined in that way. So I don't know, for example, that current day movements like Black Lives Matter or Me Too would be sort of academically classed as peace activism, maybe. I mean, I would think of them that way because you're looking at issues around gender, you're looking at issues around race, you're looking at the um, like the Parkland, the March for Our Lives. I think those are all peace activist movements, but they're not thought of, I think, in that way, just because it's probably just an academic differentiation. So work that is trying to, I think, make us better people and make the planet uh, a better place for us to live. Appreciate that answer. So... What was your approach to teaching in a carceral space? Um, how was that interaction? I mean, my approach to teaching in a carceral space was pretty similar to what I did in free campuses for a long time because I was not, I would never be able to teach now the way that I taught 11 years ago or 10 years ago. I would never have that level of freedom. And I think I just, you know, I just, like brought in materials and brought in things and nobody ever said, oh, you have to get all that, you know, check through security and you can't bring in this and you can't bring in that. And now definitely that would be happening. So whenever I am working with people in a teaching capacity that I have very high expectations of my students and by that expect that they are going to work as hard or, or I want them to work as hard for them as I'm going to work for them. And I work very hard for my students. I want them to become the best learners that they can possibly be. And I went in with that. I was not thinking of my students as any different than any other students I had ever worked with. I didn't even realize that people did that. And so I feel like I had a pretty good experience with them because I was just like, you have to do your work. Like, <laughs> I, you know, this is it. I, I mean, it's hard. So let's figure out like some of the things like, okay, you're not sure how to use a textbook. Let's go through a textbook and talk about all the different pieces. You're not sure how to study. Let's talk about that. Okay. You don't know how to take notes. Let's do that. What is your type? Oh, you don't type very well. Okay. Let's do that. So all of those things, but um, I would not lower my standards at all for students. And I think that that, um, and I've heard that from not only my students, but people who have been incarcerated and worked with teachers, that it was really the teachers who held the high standards and held them to that and held them to what they say they wanted to be, to the type of student they wanted to be, held them to that. I feel like um, a good approach to take. It's funny you mentioned about, you know, what your expectations was and how you were able to address some of the needs um, of the students um, I'm a college student now, in fact, and what I have realized on the college level is that sometimes we got to read three and four chapters, and sometimes 
we got to extrapolate the information in order to do um, what we're trying to learn in the class. And for me, um, having been incarcerated this amount of years, I am not so good with that. You know, I can um, read the stuff and then actually applying it, like when I took Excel, I couldn't really do it. I had to get someone to show me on the computer and watch them, and my instructor was okay with that. But I believe that that is an example because if you show me a video of what's being taught, you know, for instance, when I was in the Roots of Success, how to guard and how to do sustainability, we they show videos all through the class. And I was learning through watching these videos what you do in practical life when you're trying to apply it. Um, I think that that's something because most of us have issues such as that one that we don't know how to overcome and we get bad grades. Um, and so teachers got to be uh, creative in that sense, if you ask me. Yeah, I, that is, I, I talk to and work with educators all over the country who work in lots of different programs on on free campuses and in carceral campuses. And the conversation around, especially when people have been down for a very long time. So that's a, a different set of needs. There's a lot of maybe cultural context that people just miss. Even if you watch TV, like you don't have the same experience culturally, um, depending on when you when you were incarcerated, like at what point during your educational, like what exposure did you have to education? So there's a, a different set of needs there. And then when you have people who, for example, were like in and out of jail a lot and, you know, maybe they dropped out. I worked with people who had not been in school for 40 years and they wanted to come and they wanted to, you know, go through my program. And I'm like, well, you got your GED, you left school in eighth grade and you got your GED, you know, when you were 18 or 19 and you haven't even been anywhere near school since then. And you've also been, you know, on the streets. So I think one of the things that brings in for teachers is not only the content, like what is the content that I can give to people and how do I give it to them in a way that accommodates for all of these different backgrounds, but also like, how do I teach in a way that helps people be more confident in their own ability to learn? How do I help them become better learners? And maybe they're going to be at a slower pace, or maybe they're going to learn in a different way in a, an environment that is very constrained in terms of materials, but is also very constrained in the way that you can interact with students because really good teaching almost always involves building relationship, building trust with students so that they can let themselves be vulnerable even a little bit to try to open up and take in information. You know, trying to learn solely through our cognitive abilities um, is limiting. Like that's a limited approach when you prioritize cognition above everything else. You know, everything is just raw information. You're a brain in a jar. Like that's a very limiting way to approach learning. I have read in your bio um, that you are a reentry education navigator. What are your thoughts on DOC consulting with those of us who teach peer-led reentry programs such as release readiness and programs like that? Shouldn't we have a seat at the table considering we know better than anyone what our needs are to succeed? Yeah, I completely agree with that. People who have been incarcerated and have gone through the reentry process absolutely know. And I think that reentry programs in the community are tr try to do that and, and be led with, you know, led by people or at least um, on the council of people who have been directly impacted. DOCs and jails um, and even the federal, I worked with the federal BOP um, with folks coming out of the federal system. They're all different. 
Um, they all have more or less interest in helping people reenter the community. I worked in a program that was through the college. So my role was more around helping people who wanted to go to school. So I was helping some people who were recently released, but working with other people who had been out for a long time and who came from not just the state prisons, but from BOP, from jails. But reentry generally, when you're talking about like getting people back into the community, um, that should absolutely be led by people who have reentered. You know, you don't they don't start planning with them until 30 days or 60 days before release. And you really need to start like a year out. If you're really being progressive, the minute people come in is when you should start planning for them to leave. Uh, but that we're a long way away from that. I agree. And I talk about that in a lot of my other past podcast episodes. Uh, reentry starts from the day that you enter prison. I mean, it should be the goal of every person that wants to eventually return and be successful when you get released. So um, I agree with that. Do you think uh, DOC employees and staff should be trained to be more mentor role models as opposed to disciplinarians or overseers? If so, how should this look? I think we talked about this a little bit earlier when we were talking about the Norway model. I don't know in this current system, I, I don't know that you could have that because you still have the power dynamic is so skewed that I don't think it's possible for people who are incarcerated to ever trust, to really trust the people who are incarcerating them at the level you need to, to have like an official mentoring relationship. I know there are people who do see sometimes folks who work for DOC or the jail or whatever in kind of a mentoring capacity. I know that that happens and that can be really useful, but to put people in official mentoring roles requires also um, that there be a relationship. And DOC is like, it literally punishes people who have relationships, no matter what the relationship is. So I don't think that in our current system, I don't see how that would work. Yes, for sure. And um, you hit one of the key points earlier when you said that because of the history and the background of our country, it makes it that uh, we have a whole different approach to prisons uh, because of that history and what the prisons was falling for and how these overseers, which were police and all that, were were, were created for. So we have a, a different um, challenge um, that other European countries may not have. Um, and so, uh, yes, I appreciate you saying that because that makes a lot of sense. What would you like listeners to take from this interview? I mean, didn't I didn't talk a whole lot about the different approaches to trauma, like in the classroom and non-therapeutic approaches. So I think it's really important if you're an educator or you're anybody who's interested in working with people who are traumatized, unless you are a counselor or a social worker and you have been trained in helping people sort of navigate through really bad things that have happened and their childhood wounds and all this stuff. Don't ask about those things. If you want to help people who have, who are, who are trying, you, you can assume when you're working in prison that most people have had some trauma before they came to prison. They're living in a constant threat environment. So you can, I think it's pretty safe to assume people are going to have some trauma related potential roadblocks to learning. And there are, ways that you can structure your classroom that are going to facilitate them having some experiences and do some skill, like strengthening some of their skills around learning so that they they can have more access to, to learning and strengthen their own ability to learn. But you 
also need to tend to your own well-being and tend to your own trauma because one of the ways that we perpetuate harm is that we do to other people in the classroom what was done to us. So we shame them, we punish them, um, we tell them that they aren't good learners, that they're not good enough, and we need to address that as teachers. And so that means we deal with our own educational harm and our own educational traumas. So I think that if you're going to take anything from this, um, I think that's pretty important. Absolutely. And finally, how can listeners follow you or learn more about you and your work? What can they do to, uh, you know, stay up on your, your journey? Well, they can buy the book. And um, I also have a, a Substack blog that I write. You know, every few weeks I post something there. I'll give those links to our coordinator. And if y'all want to put those in the show notes, um, I also have a trauma responsive practitioners Google group um, that is got, you know, picking up members there. So there's some people there. And if you work at a Anywhere where adults learn and you are interested in this, you should reach out and contact me. I'll put my email. Um, I'll get, make sure that my email is also available for the show notes. And you should bring me to your school or bring me to your workplace. And, um, you know, let's let's talk about what it means to get ourselves in the place that we can be of the most help to the people who need us. Absolutely. And we're going to put all of your info up for anybody who's interested in what you were speaking of. But definitely, thank you, Em, for stopping by and doing the show. Definitely, everybody, go and get the book. Um, the book is called Building a Trauma-Responsive Educational Practice, Lessons from a Corrections Classroom by M. Daniels. Pick that up. It's, it's a deep book. It's powerful. Go get it. Yeah, and thanks so much, Philip, for inviting me. Thanks for making sure that um, this all went really smoothly and all the prep work that um, you and your and your coordinators did. I really appreciate that. Um, and, you know, maybe our paths will cross again sometime soon. No doubt. No doubt. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to stay in touch. Uh, you know, we are here if you need us. What we do is so that the listeners can get some information that they might not have had and assist themselves as well as their loved ones to get through search experience. So we appreciate you coming by and spending this time with us. You know, keep your head up out there. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speaker or our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the wall behind and beyond. <laughs>